Thanks for joining us today at BIB Today, the daily business podcast from the newsroom of business in Vancouver. I'm Kurt LaPointe, Editor-in-Chief. Now, the October 21st election campaign is essentially underway, even if the formal writ hasn't been issued. In the last weeks, we've seen advertisements pop up that have largely taken on a negative tone. And we've seen a lot of government initiatives promised in order to get the ball rolling on building support. Uh, Public opinion research suggests right now a pretty narrow gap between the Liberals and Conservatives, of course, very much can change in the weeks ahead. But to start our coverage of the campaign, we're turning to our regular columnist and researcher for us here at Glacier Media, Mario Canseco, president of Research Co. Good to have you with us. Great to be here, Kirk. What do the numbers tell us right now? Well, it's essentially a tie. You have a three-point lead for the Liberals, which doesn't mean a thing because things can change dramatically in the next few weeks. I think there's a couple of issues that are definitely worrisome for specific political parties. One of them is uh, Maxim Bernier's People Party not really registering that much, even though they have a lot of uh, candidates who are ready to run. And the other one is the collapse of the NDP in Quebec and in other areas, which is definitely something to watch out for. Yeah, that is a, a regional weakness for the NDP. Of course, you know, not so long ago, it had more than 50 MPs in this province uh, on the basis of Jack Layton's uh, Orange, Orange Movement. But uh, that isn't the case right now. What are some of the regional strengths and weaknesses, though, for these for the three major parties anyway? Well, I think one of the keys to the exercise for the Liberals is to continue to do well in Ontario. I think there was an expectation from the Conservatives that they would do better in the 905 belt that hasn't really materialized yet. That Doug Ford would actually be an asset? Right. And he's turned into a liability. I think mm-hmm. that's definitely part of the problem here. If the election had happened immediately after Ontario when Doug Ford was still popular, then things would have been different. But now we're moving towards this Ontario thing where they go conservative in some of the governments and then go liberal at the federal level. So yeah. we may be in a situation right now where there's a little bit of that voter remorse, particularly with the way he's been spending money and cutting some of the services, uh, which may lead a lot of of uh, voters who maybe were disenchanted with the liberals to essentially stick with Justin Trudeau. Yeah, let's keep picking up on that issue in, in Ontario right away. I mean, it, is Doug Ford proving to be the liability for Andrew Scheer? Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons why uh, the liberal uh, candidates are mentioning him that much. Yeah. He's definitely somebody who is going to make you angry. Maybe you're not angry at Andrew Scheer because he's never run anything. Uh, he's the leader of the of the other party. But you know, when you have Doug Ford there, who is making you upset because of certain decisions that he's made, it's a good strategy for the liberals to try to essentially say that they are both the same. So as we go uh, east to west, uh, do the liberals, generally speaking, maintain much of their dominance of the Atlantic? I would say that's the case. And, you know, one of the issues here is we haven't seen any resurgence from the NDP. In fact, we've had a lot of problems with the NDP organizing and finding candidates in Atlantic Canada. Mm-hmm. I don't think they expect to clean house. There's certainly several seats where the conservatives could make some gains. Uh, but it's not going to be a situation where the fluctuation goes from liberal to NDP. If anything, it'll be liberal to conservative in some of the writings. In Quebec, uh, with the NDP collapse, I mean, it's not, they, it's not like they had a an overwhelming number of MPs there anyway this time around. But do those votes largely wind up back in the liberal fold? They would wind up back in the liberal fold, and some of them would go to the bloc. I think part of the problem here is going to be figuring out the bloc candidates who have a chance to win some of the ridings. Uh, you know, I think the main issue with the NDP is they got a lot of votes from Jack Layton, who was essentially the only Quebecer who was running for the top job back in 2011. Uh, they save a little bit of that furniture with Tom Mulcair. Now it's going to be very difficult to do that with Jack Mead Singh. He's been a leader for a long time. He hasn't been in the House for that long. And we continue to see around one in four Canadians who don't know 
who he is. And this is a problem. You know, Jack Layton did very well in his third election. This is Jack Singh's first election. And we only have three out of four Canadians who actually know who he is. Jobin Singh has also decided to confront the issue uh, that I think is is probably the most polarizing issue in Quebec right now, which has to do with religious wear, with headdress, and so on. And he's decided to take that right on in the Quebec, in the Quebec constituency. Uh, is that a good move? It helps to galvanize the base outside of Quebec. I think it'll make uh, him connect with people who normally would have voted NDP in the last election and went for the Liberals because they wanted to get rid of Stephen Harper. Uh, but it's not going to help him in Quebec. If anything, we, we have the example back in 2015 of Tom Mulcair being brought into this issue and not actually saying anything that was convincing for the NDP base outside of Quebec, and he ended up losing both of them. So I think it's a good strategy. I, I think they know in their heart that they're not going to do as well in Quebec as they did four years ago or eight years ago. So we, you might as well stick it out and try to figure out if those left-center voters come back to the fold. So the Conservatives this time around do not have an MP in either of Canada's three largest cities, Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. Do they have any chance at all in the city of Toronto to elect an MP? There are a few chances there for them. I think part of the situation will be just how upset people are with certain decisions that the Trudeau government has made. Mm -hmm. And and I think it'll be roughly the same scenario in other jurisdictions, not here in Vancouver. I think they've had a hard time recruiting candidates who could be considered as star candidates in that sense. Uh, There is nobody there who has actually served as a municipal councillor, for instance. So it's going to be very difficult for them to try to connect here. If anything, it's going to be a a, a really difficult quest for the Liberals to try to hold on to those votes, not necessarily going to the NDP, uh, but the Greens who have done a masterful job recruiting people and essentially trying to say to the voters, you know, this is our chance. Maybe we'll get more than one or two MPs. So let's go across into the West now. Um, On the Prairie Provinces, uh, does Justin Trudeau's defense of the Trans Mountain Pipeline give him any credit at all in the province of Alberta? No. And one of the reasons for the numbers at the national level to be as inflated as they are for the Conservatives is because of Alberta. We consistently see 65, 68% of people saying that they want to vote for the Conservatives. Mm. And that inflates the national numbers to a level where it seems that they're tied. Uh, So there's definitely going to be a, a, a difficult task for the Liberals who are trying to hold on to those seats. And it's essentially the same situation in Manitoba and Saskatchewan. If you're somebody who is an incumbent from the Liberals, particularly somebody like like uh, uh, Ralph Goodale, who survived uh, the crushing defeat that they had under Ignatieff, I think he'll be safe, but it's not a place where they're going to make any gains. Yeah. Let's look at British Columbia. Um, it's, you know, it is actually, I think, one of the most diverse, uh, diversely represented entities in the House of Commons. I mean, what do you looking at now in the way of as the election starts in terms of where the parties uh, stand again? Well, I think we're going to see the federal conservatives doing better at the early stages of, of the campaign. Uh, the Liberals got 35% of the vote the last time, which is their highest vote total since Trudomania won in 1968. Uh, it's uh, difficult to know where they're going to hold on to that same level of support in an election that is not about change. And that brings a lot of writings into play, uh, particularly the North Shore. I think West Vancouver, North Vancouver with the Minister of Fisheries, uh, Wilkinson, uh, those are dangerous spots for the Liberals and they could very easily lose those writings yeah, and to the, the Conservatives. The Conservatives are back running Andrew Sexton, I believe, against Jonathan Wilkinson. So they're trying to retain, re- regain the seat with someone who was a sitting MP. Uh, in the same way that uh, Trans Mountain didn't help, isn't maybe going to help Justin Trudeau's party in Alberta, how much might it hurt him in British Columbia? 
it is definitely going to be difficult, particularly in a place like a, a Burnaby, uh, where you know that is essentially ground zero for the pipeline, and there's been yeah. a lot of discussions about what happens. I think ultimately it'll be what happens with the center-left vote. If we continue to see a lot of people voting strategically and trying to keep those liberal MPs in place, or if you live in an area where the NDP did well the last time, stick with the NDP, then we might not see a lot of changes to the map. But it's going to be difficult to try to figure that out. Last time around, we had a lot of campaigns asking people to vote strategically because it was an election to get rid of Stephen Harper. Now it's a completely different ballgame, and it, we may not see that high level of organization when it comes to strategic voting. When we take a look at a place like, say, Vancouver Island, Mario, um, and we talk about ground zero for the Greens, uh, you know, do they have an opportunity to add to their totals on the island in particular? This is definitely something that can happen. I think it's a very difficult challenge for the NDP in the island. Uh, the southern uh, area, uh, definitely dominated by the Greens. They've been doing well. They've elected people at the BC-wide level. But there's also the chance of a comeback from specific conservatives in other districts up north. So mm. the island used to be completely orange, and now it's going to be very different. You could have some spots of blue and some spots of green as well. When voters uh, tell you what it is that is driving them off, is it still highly leader-focused? At this point, no. You know, One mm. of the issues here is they're still getting to know people. Uh, you are obviously going to see Justin Trudeau hold the edge when it comes to dealing with foreign policy or handling specific issues. You haven't really seen what Andrew Scheer is about or what Jack Mitzin can do. Elizabeth May always does well on the environment, but doesn't really climb the charts on anything else. And she has a higher likability, which is completely understandable. Right. Uh, but it's not a situation that is going to propel her to become the next uh, head of government of the country. Uh, I, I think it, it's really issues. And what's fascinating to me is it really varies regionally. Uh, here in BC, it continues to be housing. You look at a place like Alberta, it's jobs. You look at a place like Ontario, it's uh, healthcare. So mm. the the days of the nationwide campaign where you had three or four sound bites that you repeated consistently across the land are gone. Yeah, they're going to have to find different messages to, to essentially connect with those voters who want to hear something about issues that are deeply, deeply troubling for them. So uh, if we can stick with the leaders for a moment here, um, I've, I've seen research that suggests that uh, in terms of positives and negatives, Elizabeth May comes out ahead, um, followed, really interestingly, more by Andrew Scheer than by Justin Trudeau. And Andrew Scheer has negatives, but he also has positives. Justin Trudeau has deeper negatives uh, that bring his overall total down. And Jagmeet Singh, of course, is, is uh, at the bottom of this pack. So talk a bit about what the leaders need to overcome in order to diminish their negatives, or at least to neutralize them here in the next number of weeks? Well, I think we got used to the situation we saw back in 2015, when on the final week, Trudeau connected very well, highest rating, highest numbers when it came to being seen as the next uh, head of government of the country. I think that definitely worked in his favor. This election is a little bit different. It's more, I would argue, like 97. It's not like people are in love with Jan Kretien still, but they're mm. really not seeing anything from the opposition that is moving them from one side to the other. So you could head to an election with an approval rating in the 30s or 40s and still get a majority. Mm. We're going to see something similar in Manitoba next week. Uh, there's not a lot of love for any of the leaders who are running. Uh, but at the end of the day, you look at the situation and you vote based on whether you want to change or not. And we don't see that feeling for change in Manitoba. And certainly we don't see it here in Canada right now. So ultimately, for Andrew Scheer, it's connecting. Are you at, 
are you going to be seen as a better uh, manager of finances and of everything else that has to do with the government than what Justin Trudeau is? And for the liberals, it'll be about making Andrew Scheer somebody who they're scared of. Right. It, the social file for uh, on Andrew Scheer is obviously what the liberals are focusing on right now, as, as will, of course, the NDP. Um, what does he have to do, do you think, in order to assuage people that he is not some kind of, uh, you know, old style, uh, you know, throwback of some sort on issues that Canadians seem to have already debated and determined? Well, I think one of the things that they need to do is to discuss specific policies that they wouldn't touch, but not do it through a spokesperson or through a press release that is sent at 3 a.m. in the morning where you say, we're not going to touch this. It has to come from the leader himself. And that is important because... Because Stephen Harper did that. Exactly. And I think that was one of the differences in the fact that he did better because he was the first one to say, we're not going to be touching this. We are concentrated on small issues. We're going to cut the GST. We're going to help you uh, buy some things so so your kids can go to sports. If he continues to talk about these boutique tax cuts, I think it will be much more worthwhile for their cause than to continue to talk about specific social issues. Uh, The sooner they can get around the idea that they're going to be reopening everything and changing same-sex marriage and dealing with abortion, uh, the better it'll be for them because they will have more time to talk about their own policies and not be on the defensive all the time. Because am I right about this? Both Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer have the same personal view about abortion. Yes, Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They it's essentially say that uh, religiously and personally they don't like it, but they don't think it's uh, right. something that should be opened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's then let's look at um, the kinds of things that might determine the vote this time. Uh, the economy is uh, performing pretty well. We just had actually a pretty darn good quarter around the GDP. I think surprised even the liberals on how good that one went. Uh, so can Andrew Scheer really? muscle in and and attack the liberals over the economy it's not a it's not an issue where they can win and and ultimately i think part of the situation is uh, a lot of people base their vote on the unemployment rate it's not necessarily about factories opening or gdp or a bunch of things that the average voter doesn't pay attention to it's ultimately unemployment and the numbers are fantastically good right now. Yeah, we have the fullest employment in about 45 years. So that definitely helps the liberals say, look, everything is fine now. Do you really want to go back to a situation where the uh, unemployment rate will be climbing uh, upwards of 6 or 7% because that's what can happen? Uh, it's not a good strategy. I think it's more about the tax cuts more than anything. Uh, yeah. You know, talk about c- certain things that you would do differently and not touch others. Uh, but I think there's a problem also with the conservatives. There's this obsession with saying no to deficits. And ultimately, mm-hmm. that is what doomed Tom Mulcair's campaign. You yeah. had a social Democrat campaigning from the left who said, I'm going to be a very conservative prime minister. And that's where the numbers started to drop. Yeah, let's pick up on that, though. I mean, the conservatives obviously want to point out to Canadians that Justin Trudeau now has deficits that will run through, what, 2040, it looks like, at least. Uh, How do they manage to do that to say, look, there seems to be an out-of-control situation here, and yet bear in mind that Canadians don't seem to have this year-by-year obsession that they once did with balancing their books? I think one of the things that happened in the uh, late 80s and early 90s was that the services started to suffer. And when that happens, that's the moment when you start to realize that not running a deficit really doesn't make a lot of sense when you don't have the services that you require. No, because you're not going to have to pay for it. Your children will. <laughs> well, of course. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it's, it's a sad situation because ultimately you don't want to see anything like this happening. 
but it was a winning strategy for the liberals the last time around. Uh, the NDP thought, well, if we run from the left and talk about services, but also run from the right and say that there will be a no, no a deficit, uh, we'll, we'll get everybody. And what ended up happening is they got nobody. For certain segments of society, uh, climate change and the environment will still be the issue uh, in all of this. Uh, again, I, I look at uh, the conservatives probably as the ones that have the most explaining still to do on Absolutely. all of this. What, what do you think they can do uh, that doesn't depart too much from their playbook in a way that actually doesn't uh, then uh, you know cost them support in the next little while? Well, I think the key here is to... Uh, reassure the people who vote for them consistently, which are in Alberta, for instance, uh, that anything related to climate change will not come at the expense of the industries that we have now. And that is going to be a very tough sell. Uh, but it's also the way in which other politicians have been talking about the issue. I mean, Jason Kenney in Alberta seems to be talking about specific things that the liberals would do to destroy the industry and the oil patch. Um, Andrew Shear needs to come out with his own voice and say, this is what we believe should be happening. Or you just take the bullet and say, we do believe that this is real and we think that there will be a solution sometime. Um, you're not going to get the environmentally friendly vote to go conservative. I think it's more an exercise of how can I talk about this issue without alienating those who care more about environmental growth than, in, sorry, uh, of uh, economic growth than environmental protection. Uh, we had uh, Perrin Beattie on the podcast some time back, the CEO of the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, and he he ventured the idea that neither of the three major parties have a climate change plan that actually is uh, is costed out properly, and but but uh, and or that will be effective in meeting our uh, Paris Accord requirements. But neither of them will actually admit this during the <laughs> campaign. Um, He's absolutely right. Is there is there anything that is going to uh, going to basically get at any of these parties around some of their policies? You know, will will there be the kind of fact checking and scrutiny on parties in this, or do they actually hold the upper hand with their ads, with their messaging, and all that? And and you know, whether it's journalists or opponents, are just not going to be able to smoke them out on things. Well, I think it's a combination of both. You know, you, you never know what is going to resonate, what type of uh, situation is going to make people more upset with you or happier with the way you're doing things. Um, we saw the campaign against Justin Trudeau from the Conservatives, for instance, backfire immensely the last time around, and their positive message did very well. Now, I'm not sure if they're going to be trying to do the same type of situation here. Mm -hmm. We also saw Tom Mulcair, when they tried to rebrand him as this very nice guy who was having espresso and was interested in having conversations, when people actually fell in love with the Tom Mulcair that was sticking it to the Harper government every yeah, night almost, in the house. It was almost like we didn't want the nice guy. Right. We wanted the tough guy. We wanted the tough guy. Yeah. And that was was yeah. the reason why they started the last campaign in first place. Yeah. Uh, this is going to be different. I think there's definitely going to be more scrutiny because we have uh, more emphasis because of social media. A lot of people who are going to be looking into specific platform planks and saying this is something uh, that is not costed, that can't work. Uh, but you ultimately don't know what's going to happen. Campaigns can change depending on the situation on the ground. I mean, we spent a week talking about refugees because of that poor kid who died in Syria. Yeah. Nobody expected that two months before the election began. Yeah. In terms of the nice guy, not so nice guy stuff, uh, obviously with Andrew Scheer, the conservatives have tried to package him in recent times as not being the kind of dour force that Stephen Harper might have been in certain instances. They're trying to you know, make him kind of a cuddlier version in a lot of ways. Uh, it sounds like what you're saying, though, is that he has to get 
tougher. He has to he has to speak more forcefully on types of issues. How does he do that without again engendering this concern that oh my goodness, here we go again. We're getting another dark force in our in our midst. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's also an image game. You know, we're not going to see him wear a lot of suits. We're not going to see him wear a sweater vest. <laughs> yeah. It's going to be a completely different situation from the one Harper did. And Harper, for the most part of his career, was running as an incumbent. So it's a little easier to just turn around and say, uh, you haven't been there. You don't know what you're saying. I've been there. I know how to handle this. It's much tougher to run as the opposition leader. And I think ultimately it has to be about the vision of the country. But that vision of the country uh, also puts off a lot of people who are worried about social issues. So the sooner they can get that behind them, the easier it'll be for them to say our economic plan can work because of this idea or that idea or specific tax cuts that we have for your family. Uh, connecting with the family work for Harper. Uh, but it came after he said, we're not touching any of these things. And if the social conservatives are angry, they can go elsewhere. And even if they could go elsewhere, they're not going to go to the People's Party. Two last areas around uh, around Justin Trudeau. Um, you know, in, in reading the recent John Iveson book, um, he characterized the, uh, the government as one that had made a lot of promises. And at the end of its first term, a lot of these promises are unfulfilled. How much of that sticks to Justin Trudeau, that he walked away from things like proportional representation, uh, that he hasn't been able to fulfill the First Nations agenda to some to some degree, that he's had still, and he's obviously uh, extended out things like deficit spending. Um, how much does that hurt him right now? It hurts him with the people who voted for him the first time. And, you know, we saw a concerted effort from the Liberals to try to attract people who would have otherwise voted for the NDP or the Greens the last time, especially millennials. So now maybe you're somebody who was 19 or 20 in the last election, voted for Trudeau because you wanted electoral reform, and he said no to the pipeline. Well, guess what? Four years later, you will have the pipeline and you won't have proportional representation. So will you go to the Greens? Will you go to the NDP? Or mm. if somebody from the Liberals comes knocking, they're going to convince you about the fact that you're better off now because Andrew Scheer is coming. So or, will I, I you, think, or will you just not vote? Well, exactly. Mm. That's also one of the dangers. And you know, we've seen... Uh, voter turnout uh, was higher the last time around between the ages of 18 to 24, but it was lower between those 25 and 34. And that's it's the second election that gets you. It's the fact that you volunteered, that you went there, that you got involved, got engaged, knocked on doors, wanted to see your friends elected, and then you lost or then you won and the promises weren't kept and you get to those late 20s and you say, why bother? So we've gotten 22 minutes into this without ever mentioning SNC-Lavalin <laughs> and Jody Wilson-Raybould. I think that's the Justin Trudeau's hope in the debate as well. Yeah, I, I would suspect so. So let's conclude on that, though. Where, How does this issue still have an impact on the Liberals? Well, it's definitely related to the way in which they handle themselves. And, you know, you have a situation here where Jody Wilson-Raybould is very well known. It's going to be a very tough fight for that seat. Uh, yeah. I don't think it's a coincidence that now we're starting to see all of those billboards advertising the subway or beauty station. Uh, it's going to be one of those ribbon-cutting ceremonies that the liberals desperately need. And I think that uh, on, on a much more menial uh, scale, uh, there's definitely a hope for the liberals to regain that seat and to not have to deal with Jody Wilson-Raybould. 
but it's still going to happen. And you, those are going to be debates that are going to be watched. Uh, she's going to be followed in a way that no other independent candidate has been followed before. Uh, you will have a national presence at some of her events. And I think that definitely plays into the role of, oh, yes, you know, she, was the, she was the minister and she quit because of this thing. So that keeps it... Uh, so, in the minds of the public, but is is you know the 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 mess that we saw only a matter of months ago, the fumbling of the file it seemed almost daily for the liberals. Will people really forget that by the time October twenty one comes? If the opposition does a good job of reminding them, maybe they won't. I think it's ultimately in their hands to try to talk about specific things. Uh, you know, bring in the whole government accountability file. Now, it's not resonating as an issue as loudly as many people expected. We still have it in single digits. You talk about a situation like Gordon Campbell bringing in the HST and accountability goes to 20, 25 yeah. percent. So people are offended. Yes, but not at the level that would require something drastic to happen. Yeah. And uh, last point, uh, the English language debate is on the 7th of October, two weeks before. Um, once again, is that really the, you know, the, the, the fulcrum of the entire campaign where, where people either catch on or don't catch on? Well, we always go back to 1984 and you had an option, sir, yeah, uh, being authored by could, Brian Mulroney. You, you could have said no. That's it's right. yeah, not going that, to yeah. be that drastic. But I, I do think that debates can definitely play a role in, in making people connect. I think Justin Trudeau handled it very well the last time around. Uh, and I would go back to 2011. Uh, Michael Ignatieff had a terrible debate. And mm -hmm. Jack Layton did very well, connected with people who never thought were going to vote for the NDP. And by the weekend, they were in second place. So if you have a good performance, it's not necessarily about that knockout punch. It's about the next couple of days, the coverage in the media, the sound bites that are going to get sent uh, by email or WhatsApp or however you are communicating with your friends. Um, that is what's going to define it. Yeah, and I, I shouldn't let you off here without asking a little bit about, you know, in a traditional campaign, you've got television, print, advertising. How much of the of the newer style type of campaigning, social media, memes, any number of things will matter this time? How much, how much do you think it's going to play a role? I think it'll be big. Part of, and one of the reasons for this is we are now at the stage where the older generations are catching up in using social media and in using different ways to communicate. And it's different from four years ago where everything was sent to your friends and it was much, a much more younger uh, cohort. This is completely different. Now you're going to see a lot of that information being sent to your parents and your grandparents, and they may not know how to deal with it, but they certainly will be exposed to it. And I wonder too, uh, given the American election and the way that uh, fake news uh, really prevailed in some respects, are we going to see, do you think, a, a smarter system here of policing that so that we're not necessarily as susceptible to, to seeing things that are like totally untruthful? Well, I would sincerely hope so. Uh, we see it all the time. We're already seeing it with specific stories. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't been a great situation uh, to be a fact checker in that sense when you're trying to navigate through everything. And there, there will be uh, definitely bad situations and certain things that are going to be said. Uh, it's difficult to solve them immediately and because everything travels extremely fast. 
but I was definitely heartened by what Karina Gould said about this. And I know it's a little bit uncomfortable to have somebody who's running for office saying that they're going to be in charge of making sure that fake news isn't out there. It might be time to create some sort of different consortium or something, uh, but that would be later uh, on. But sadly, I think it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. Mario, always good to see you. Thanks a lot for coming in. My pleasure. Mario Canseco is president of Research Co. And you've been listening to BIV Today. I'm Kirk LaPointe. Thanks a lot for listening. We'll see you next time. 